0: Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a Non-Denominational Guide to Psychotherapy for New and Experienced Therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your session and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide.
1: And I'm Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist.
0: I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to Chapter Twenty-One in the book. And Chapter Twenty-One is uh, the continuation of our examination of involuntary symptoms, focusing today on trauma and dissociation. And with the work that we have done thus far in examining the chapters of this book, there is one critical question that we did not ask up until now, which is how emotions resulting from trauma can be locked away outside of consciousness. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. Smith.
1: Well, that's a very key element because we've talked about how to heal painful emotions once they're, they arrive in the room, but we haven't really talked about what keeps them out of the room. And that, that is the critical element in understanding about trauma. As we talk about trauma, we're going to find out that dissociation is that mechanism and it's actually kind of the quintessential uh, EDP, entrenched dysfunctional pattern, in that dissociation is, above all, a way of avoiding painful feelings that go with traumatic events. And so so we're gonna link trauma and dissociation very closely together.
0: So how, how would we begin to take the mystery out of dissociation?
1: So interestingly enough, when you read about trauma, it's quite rare to think of dissociation as being a central aspect of trauma, but it really is. Because when people have some traumatic experience and they're able to process the emotions right away after that, or soon after the event happens, then there really isn't very much lasting damage. The damage from PTSD comes from all of the things that the, that the mind does or the dissociation that the mind does to, to keep those painful emotions out of consciousness in some way and there are different ways that the non-conscious problem solver can do that.
0: You provide an example of a woman who discovers that her husband was having an affair.
1: Yes, and that really was a very typical example of how dissociation is misdiagnosed frequently. This woman uh, discovered her husband's affair and she felt weird. She felt strange afterwards and, and was really uncomfortable and unhappy. And not not just about the thing that had happened, but there was something strange going on. And so she went to several different doctors and therapists and somebody said, oh, this is anxiety. And they gave her treatment for anxiety. Somebody else said it's depression. They treated her for that and various therapies and so on. And this had gone on for several years. Nobody realized that she was in a state of dissociation where she had distance from all of her feelings, including the terrible feelings that related to her husband's affair. And so she was walking around uh, in in an abnormal state, having lost her feelings. And once we realized that, then we could gently work on bringing the feelings back into consciousness and into the room where they could heal. And that's exactly what happened.
0: You differentiate dissociation in terms of derealization and depersonalization. Could you tell us a little bit more?
1: Yeah, so so dissociation really is the mind's capacity, and this all happens automatically, the mind's capacity to create barriers that separate things that are too much to handle. And the reason I say barriers in general like that is because that there's an incredible amount of flexibility in this system that anything can be separated from anything else. I remember once a patient who had a, a split between her right side of her body and her left side of her body and the right side wanted to do bodily harm to me um, in the office and the other side grabbed that arm and prevented it from doing anything. So it's very, very flexible and That flexibility results in different kinds of of syndromes. The most common one is what you see on TV after a disaster, that people walk around sort of like zombies and they can do what they have to do. What's missing is they have no feelings. And that's because their feelings have been dissociated even though their cognitive abilities are still there and they know what's going on. Another kind of dissociation is depersonalization where you don't feel like yourself. There's derealization where you feel like all of reality isn't quite real. Uh, sometimes there's amnesia for a certain event uh, that is just lost to uh, to recall. And and probably related are things called conversion reactions, where like uh, like psychogenic paralysis or blindness, which is actually fairly common. So there are many different ways that the mind can split off some aspect of experience and, and can do it very flexibly. It happens in an instant, or it can happen in an instant, and it can also get undone in an instant. And so that's how we know this is not a, a uh, it, it's something that goes on in the, the synapses, the thinking, information processing part of the brain. It's not a change in hormones or something like that that takes a longer time period.
0: So then when you see somebody who is having some kind of conversion reaction, presenting with conversion reaction in your therapy room, you would immediately suspect association?
1: Yes. You know, I'd I'd be asking myself what is being avoided here. And it includes another element that the symptom is in some way symbolically related to whatever it is that's being avoided, like psychogenic blindness may have to do with avoiding the sight or the the memory of some visual experience that's particularly troublesome. So there's some added elements, but basically, yes.
0: You state that once acquired as a mental capacity, dissociation is entirely automatic.
1: Yes, I say once acquired because I've run into situations. One woman, when she was a little girl, was being sexually abused and described how she focused on a spot on the ceiling. It was classic self-hypnosis. And the more she focused on that spot, the more she suddenly found herself as if she was observing herself from that spot, looking down on this child and what was happening. And that way she had some separation from actually being the victim of it. So, so it's something that can be learned and it's certainly in people who've been traumatized early in life uh, often have a greater ability to dos- dissociate than other people
0: because it's a very effective response, really.
1: Right, right. So we call it an entrenched dysfunctional pattern only because later in life it becomes a problem. But at the time, it may be a life-saving or very important protective mechanism.
0: Right. So could you tell us a little bit about how dissociation relates to PTSD?
1: Good question. And this is kind of a secret because if you read about PTSD, it's quite rare that a basic discussion of PTSD is going to mention dissociation. But if you look at the four main symptoms of PTSD, then dissociation is at the heart of each one of them. First of all, there's emotional numbing in relation to the trauma. Well, how do we numb our emotions? It's by splitting them off with dissociation. And the second major symptom of PTSD is having flashbacks, having memory fragments intrude into consciousness. Well, that's a kind of failure of dissociation where every once in a while, some little piece of memory breaks through the dissociative barrier. And unfortunately, for reasons that aren't exactly clear to me, that's not a healing thing. It's just painful. It doesn't participate in, in the healing process that we'll be talking about. But that's flashbacks. And then the third group of symptoms of PTSD is is the avoidance of reminders of the the traumatic thing. In other words, consciously doing things to prevent uh, the memory from breaking through those dissociative barriers. And that might be people use drugs or drink alcohol, for example, in order not to remember, or they may avoid certain kinds of circumstances. And that can be very, very harmful and and destructive. So that's another layer of EDP on top of the, the PTSD. But it, the avoidance wouldn't be there unless dissociation were preventing the, the recall from coming into consciousness. It's a reinforcement. And the fourth one is hypervigilance. It's the expectation that the traumatic event is going to come back or come back into consciousness at any moment Because dissociation, as you can see, the mind considers it to be a fairly fragile barrier that can be overcome if something is a reminder. And often that's how people do come to recall events that have been dissociated is something might remind them they'll go to a movie and suddenly a scene feels like, oh my gosh, I've I've been there before. I know what happened.
0: And you state that the presence of a barrier to consciousness, such as dissociation, does not prevent the toxic effects of trauma from causing problems.
1: Well, that's right, because the avoidance of the traumatic emotions and, and events it causes a lot of damage. The things we do to avoid recall, the flashbacks are very, very distressing. The hypervigilance does damage to the body by keeping the stress hormones going all the time and interfering in sleep. So it takes a tremendous amount of energy for the mind to hold off those uh, those painful uh, affects because the the instinctive problem solver doesn't know that it's possible to heal those painful uh, memories. And so it just keeps on going, trying to avoid them instead.
0: Which that avoidance really is kind of a flight pattern, isn't it?
1: hmm Yep.
0: So how does all of this apply to complex trauma as opposed to big T single event trauma?
1: Well, even repeated trauma is more likely to produce complex consequences, but here we're, we're really focusing on kind of the core avoidance of, of traumatic memories. But early trauma, especially when, it's, when it happens over and over again, when it's perpetrated by people who are members of the family or permitted by members of the family, Those things cause long-lasting distortions in a couple of ways. One is that that personality traits may get formed in those early times, and those can be uh, damaging, like uh, just learning not to trust anybody. Uh, That causes tremendous damage later on in life. So personality patterns would be one, and the other that I think is particularly important is that people who are treated as if they have no value and no power and no importance begin to form a value system or an attitude internally that they are of no value, uh, that they are unimportant, that they are powerless. And we see that almost universally in people who've suffered early life trauma, that they have low self-esteem and they don't take good care of themselves. Sometimes people talk about it as if it's something learned, but I really see it differently. I see it as a purposeful defense mechanism that involves identification with the perpetrator in order to preserve some sense of connection. And so it's actually adopting the perpetrator's values as expressed by the abusive behavior. And that has lasting power like all value systems it it tends to last on and on. And so in my experience, that's one of the most challenging aspects of trauma treatment. But those are things that we've talked about in earlier chapters when we talked about values and and personality traits and things like that. So here, we're just gonna focus on the avoidance of traumatic memories through the mechanism of dissociation and how we can work with that.
0: You mentioned the work of uh, Bessel van der Kolk the body keeps the score as a good source for learning more about trauma.
1: Yes, that's an excellent, uh, an excellent book. And I also would recommend as we go a little further and talk about multiple personalities, which is another form of dissociation about the Sidran foundation S I D R A N and they're on the internet and it's a very responsible and excellent a source of information about dissociative problems and trauma.
0: You you state that um, dissociation is a necessary protection, but can later become a severe liability, and that also dissociation. Suggests seems to be based on nerve signals rather than hormones or other slower brain processes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, that, that's what I said before. So I think of the problems that psychotherapy is aimed at working with are mainly uh, problems of mind. In other words, they have to do with the information processing that goes on amongst those synapses and nerve cells in the brain. It's not the hardware. It's really about the information and how it's, uh, how it's processed. And that kind of thinking is very fast. It's it's practically instantaneous, as we all know. So it's it's the rapidity of things that tells us that it's going on in the synapses, rather than changes in hormones or uh, or other ad- adjustments to the um, to the body and the and the brain. And dissociation, because it's something that can happen in an instant, and it can be undone in an instant that tells us that somehow the brain is doing calculations here and it's through either enhancement or inhibi- inhibition of some nerve signals in, in the brain that is causing dissociation. How this works, to my knowledge, nobody really understands how it works. It's something, it's definitely in software and it's a very remarkable and flexible system.
0: So it, it would seem then that reconsolidation would be an indicated course of treatment.
1: That's right, the mechanism of memory reconsolidation that we've talked about many times, where the combination of recall of of a, a pattern that's of a dysfunctional pattern, combined with awareness of contradictory information, that is what I call the antidote. When those two come together, then for a few hours, the uh, memories traces are able to be modified according to the new information. And so what once was identified by the mind as something terribly dangerous to be avoided can be changed so that now it's identified as something that's that's unfortunate but not the end of the world. It's just a dull ache, not, a, not an acute disastrous uh, event.
0: All right. And, and And especially with complex trauma, then, reconsolidation, we disrupt the neural connections and and those networks Mm -hmm. and are able to install more ecologically valid beliefs about the self in terms of self-esteem and inherent worth.
1: Yeah. So this mechanism is across the board super important, but it's the basic one by which painful memories are, are detoxified, where before they're, they're treated as something that I that must not be recalled, must not be experienced ever again. It's something unbelievably terrible. And we go in the process of treatment, we go from that to where it's something that is a dull ache. It's unfortunate, it's painful, it's, it's too bad, but it's not something that you have to work to avoid.
0: Right. EMDR, which I practice, as you know, is a very good course of treatment.
1: Absolutely, because when, when a feeling is feels so terrible and overwhelming that you can't even face it, uh, one thing that EMDR does is to break it up into little chunks and to present those chunks in a way that they're not overwhelming, that, that they can be uh, dealt with. And that's the kind of the antidote that, that takes away or that, that provides an alternative to the, the feeling that, oh my, this is something that I can't deal with.
0: Right. So treatment then, to me, would seem relatively simple in terms of uh, what would be indicated for somebody who has suffered complex or big T single event trauma. Multiple personalities or dissociative identity disorder is a tougher nut to crack.
1: Uh, yes, let me, let me clarify a little bit. I think we have a, a little misunderstanding about complex PTSD. So, so complex PTSD is really the stuff that goes beyond those four symptoms of emotional numbing, uh, avoidance of memories, flashbacks, and hypervigilance. Complex trauma really refers to the distortions in personality and in value systems that become ongoing problems in themselves as opposed to the complexity of the events that created the trauma. no trauma can happen from things that happened over and over and over again, or it can be a single dramatic event and it can happen early in life, it can happen later in life, or as is very typical, people who have like wartime PTSD often respond by dissociation from their wartime experiences because they had early life trauma and they learned to dissociate. And so in unraveling that, you may find yourself at first thinking you're gonna be dealing with the wartime trauma and then pretty soon you're taken back to early life stuff that, that set the stage for PTSD in wartime, as opposed to the healthier response to wartime experiences, which is to process the emotions at the time. Right. Of course, obviously, in many circumstances, in soldiers are not going to do that. That's mm-hmm. why PTSD is so prevalent amongst veterans.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so okay. that
1: mm-hmm.
0: st- structural dissociation
1: mm-hmm.
0: that is seen in DID.
1: Mm-hmm. So is DID,
0: multiple, multiple... dream form.
1: Yeah, right? multiple personality. Just for fun, I'm going to refer you to two books. One is Just Just Published, called uh, Losing the Atmosphere by Vivian Conan, and the other one is by Robert Oxnam, and it's called A Fractured Mind. And the reason I mention those is because they're both written by, uh, by patients of mine who decided to write about their experience in book form, and they both had quite different experiences with multiple personality disorder, currently technically called dissociative identity disorder. So dissociative identity disorder is often misunderstood because it looks like there are, there are sort of different people uh, within, this, within the same brain and, and that seems really weird. And there are people who say, oh no, that's not possible. And other people say, yes, it is and so on. But really it just makes more sense when you think of it as a set of dissociative barriers that divide different parts of the personality and when that division is maintained over years and years, then the different divided parts begin to have their own histories and their own characteristics and their own values. And so, so pretty soon there's a, there's a switching according to circumstances to whichever part of the mind might be the, the most appropriate for a given circumstance. So one time it might be that a, a uh, fierce and, and dangerous protector pops out in order to deal with some kind of threat, and at another time it might be a little child or uh, or somebody who just knows how to function and doesn't feel anything. So I think that it's it's really not as mysterious or weird as it might uh, as it might seem. In fact, I think most of us tend not to realize to what extent we have different personalities. Uh, when you go to a party, you might be quite different from when you're in the office and uh, and being professional. And that might be different from how you are when you're on the beach on vacation. And those differences in personality, we gloss over them because they all have the same name. It's our name. And because we don't have breaks in our recall, we don't lose time as people with DID often say. And so we don't realize that we're switching, but we are really Making quite radical changes in our in our whole personality and the way we react,
0: right? And but our parts are aware of each other.
1: Exactly. There the dissociative barriers don't include memory. Now, in people with DID, the amount of separation can be quite variable, and one part can know about another, and the other one doesn't know about the first one. Uh, that changes over time, and. With treatment, the direction that treatment takes is towards greater understanding and appreciation between different parts, so that eventually, remaining separate is not as important as it once was.
0: So, how do you work with someone with DID?
1: Well, the, the, there are three aspects, really, uh, kind of three phases of treatment. The first one is is to ensure safety, uh, because very often the The process of maintaining separateness between the experiences and the the parts that know about the experiences and the parts that don't know about experiences and the protection and and um, safety measures and things like that. all of that is quite threatening and often there there are parts that might identify with a perpetrator and be intent on some form of of self-harm that then is, kept in check. And so establishing safety is really the first goal, and that's the focus of early treatment. Um, as, as safety begins to be something that you can you can count on, then treatment can move on to the same thing as, as in other kinds of PTSD, which is beginning to make the memories and the events to move towards recall and, and move towards recall with feeling where the healing begins to be possible, where the processing of memories and painful emotions can take place generally um, through memory uh, reconsolidation. Actually, it's quite interesting. The the first patient that Freud had um, when he first kind of invented his his mode of therapy was a dissociative identity patient, Anna O. And when she recalled, she called it chimney sweeping, when she recalled the traumatic events of her life, Then Freud found that they that the traumatic aspect of them kind of disappeared. Well, that was healing by memory reconsolidation. And what made it really possible was that those memories had not been recalled at all. They had stayed completely dormant and covered up since they happened in the first place. So that when they when they did come to consciousness, then it was a dramatic, full consciousness as if it was happening in the moment. And that kind of, that level of recall is what really makes memory reconsolidation possible. It's extremely, you know, very, very vivid, very, very real, very much, quote, in the room, unquote.
0: Was she having a flashback?
1: They, they weren't flashbacks, they were, because flashbacks are these intrusive fragments of memory. They were really recall. In, the, in that case, in the case of Anna O, oh, he used hypnosis. He invited her to, to change states to one where she did have recall and processed the feelings in those states. And it seems that that worked. I'm not a particular proponent of, of hypnosis. It is used for DID and other kinds of trauma. The reason I'm not particularly fond of it is because hypnosis has this kind of authoritarian uh, control f- by another person that's already been too much part of the picture for a person who's been traumatized in early life. So I don't think that therapists ought to borrow the tools of, of perpetrators like controlling other people. So it makes me uncomfortable, um, makes me worry about re-traumatization.
0: Right, so so it feels
1: overly directive to you. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the final phase of, of DID treatment, I said there were three, is when the different parts become more aware of each other and more tolerant of each other. Uh, kind of typical is there might be in in the case of sexual abuse, there might be a part who is very flirtatious and and sexual and has learned to deal with perpetrators in in that sort of way, where there's another part that is very innocent and doesn't know anything about sexuality and and has never uh, developed to the point of of that being part of life. Well, what happens in treatment is the younger parts go through a growth and maturation process and become more adult or older, and and the ones who are less innocent the innocent ones become more ready to know about things like that in life. And so gradually, there's an appreciation that each part has played an important role in protection uh, against further harm, or the innocent parts often are the ones who, who kind of protect the innocence. They protect the undistorted personality so that there isn't as much of that kind of you know personality distortion that, that I talked about with PTSD where that kind of dissociative identity disorder was not available as a defense. It really can function in a very important way to keep parts of the personality innocent.
0: Right. So what is really required of a therapist working somebody with DID is a, a great fluidity. In being able to recognize the parts as they manifest during session uh, and also to recognize them as individual entities.
1: That's right and and at least in my experience one forms relationships, different relationships at the same time as recognizing that this is only a part of the whole person um, but there, but there are parts who really do have a full range of feelings, or some of them do, and so one can form a relationship. And each one has business to transact, so that often it's it's optimal to have longer sessions. And it and as you say, it does require a good deal of fluidity. One more thing that I think is a requirement for working with DID is being relatively comfortable with not knowing things, because in this kind of sprawling, complex, divided up life experience, there just is a tremendous amount that, as a therapist, that you can't know. And so you just have to have faith and wait and and be open to whatever, however it unfolds. For example, a, a simple aspect of that is that if you try to guess at the beginning, when you first begin to understand who all of the different parts might be, if you try to guess who is going to be the central one at the end of treatment, you're probably going to be wrong. Hmm. You know, the one who comes to the office may very well disappear at some point.
0: Fascinating. So the treatment principles then, fight flight cycle.
1: Right, Um, here we, we owe a lot to Peter Levine who is the originator of somatic experiencing therapy. What Peter Levine talks about the, the normal cycle of stress and release, and contrast that with the, the, the interrupted cycle that happens in PTSD. So he talks about herd animals uh, in, in Africa, and they're all grazing peacefully and enjoying the, the bright sun. And then somebody uh, picks up the signal that there's a lion in the vicinity, and eventually the lion charges, and the whole herd. Uh, stampedes. They start to run and they run as fast as they can, and their stress hormones are raised, and and their heartbeat is is fast, and they're they're at maximum stress response. And then the lion picks out a straggler and does does what lions do, and the rest of the herd runs for a while, and then they gradually stop, and then they go through a little period where they kind of shake off the, um, the the stress. They stamp around and, and they're very active. And we can see that in humans after they've done something stressful, like after a sports event where they've been really, really keyed up. And, and then afterwards they all kind of slap each other on the back and, and sort of jump around and then settle down. And then pretty soon the herd going back to the animals, the herd is grazing peacefully again. And so they've gone through the full cycle of peace, then experiencing threat, then maximum stress, and then release. And so what happens in PTSD is the release doesn't happen, is that in some way, at the point of maximum stress, the process is stopped and put on hold. And so what Peter Levine pioneered was how to return to that point where where the stress was put on hold and resume the process of recall and uh, and processing. And I think that gives us a very good model that in general, PTSD is really about the moment where dissociation uh, took us away from the immediate experience. And so the emotions get buried, the events get buried, the recall gets buried and waits however many days, years, uh, decades un- until it maybe has a chance uh, under softer and more gentle conditions to come back into consciousness where the healing can start again. And
0: so that the main symptoms of PTSD that, that are present are in fact a function of, a, of nervous system hyperarousal so that the system continuously feels that it's under threat and is either producing a fight-flight response or a freeze-submit response. Mm-hmm depending upon the recognized or the perceived threat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so that goes on and on and on. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to keep this process on hold, uh, to keep it from unfolding as it naturally should. And so that's what therapy really is about, allowing the experience to to come back to conscious awareness in a context of, of safety where it can be processed.
0: Right. And conscious awareness that the perceived threat is not actual,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: that actually right here, right now, the patient is safe.
1: Right. And it's, it's a context of safety. And of course, we all know that for human beings, the thing that gives us the greatest sense of safety is, is a relationship, is a uh, empathic a warm connection with another human being.
0: Right. So how do we uh, assist patient uh, in ac- accessing dissociated facts and feelings?
1: Well, there are many, many ways to do that, EMDR being one of the ones that's particularly well adapted to trauma, but it, it basically, it's about creating a sense of predictability, a sense of safety, a sense of empathic understanding that tends to send the message to the non-conscious problem solver that the coast is clear. It's okay to access those feelings now. It's not going to be harmful or dangerous. And we're going to be able to work with those feelings so that they will no longer be so troublesome. And I think it's, it's when the instinctive mind begins to sense that that the dissociative barriers begin to lift. I once had a patient who couldn't come out of her dissociative state at the end of sessions and I had a hard time ending sessions. So I took a course on hypnosis to try to figure out how to help her end the sessions. Well, it didn't help because dissociation really is a thing of itself. It, It is under its own automatic control. And so my conclusion was, you just have to be patient and create the conditions where dissociation is no longer necessary. How do you end sessions? Well, patients have their own ways of managing these things and this is another place where you just have to trust and count on your patient to figure out how to do it.
0: Right, and so you have to be very mindful of your scheduling.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right, yes. Somehow it just does work because you really have allies that you don't even know about when you're working with dissociative patients.
0: Right. And that main ally, ally might be they're going on with normal life parts.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the ones who can handle therapy generally are people who have a life outside, who may be mothers or even therapists and manage to get along in spite of, of having uh, experiences like losing time.
0: So you mentioned that one of the big components of uh, helping a person suffering from dissociation is to build a perspective, a narrative, which I think is, is a key component to
1: post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. It, that's right. And, and I think sometimes we don't think of that, but people really do relate to the story of what happened to them, the story of their life. And very often at the beginning of treatment, that story is going to be a distorted one, like I'm not a valuable person and, and and my life is going nowhere good. And so I think working with that story and helping the patient to realize that that there is a positive story that is unfolding with the treatment um, can, can be very helpful, can give a sense of, of hope. And hope is really an important part of uh, what helps people be motivated to do the hard work of treatment?
0: So then we're we're coming to the end of the chapter, Dr. Smith, and I was just wondering if maybe we could re- recap what we discussed today.
1: Yes. Yeah, so so really, the the important points here are that PTSD, that the that the pure form of PTSD really is about dissociation. It's about dissociation as an entrenched dysfunctional pattern of avoiding emotion, avoiding painful emotions in such a way that they're not able to heal. And the treatment is is ultimately about creating the safety to allow those emotions to come into the room so that they can be uh, reconsolidated, um, so that the memories can be altered to associate them with safety rather than associating them with something unspeakably terrible. So we're bringing together PTSD and dissociation as they really ought to be. They ought to be very, very closely associated and bringing those together with the healing mechanism that we've talked about so many times of memory reconsolidation. And so, you know, that's kind of where this chapter brings us to is, is the last of the different categories of entrenched dysfunctional patterns that we've been talking about. And I think in this particular treatment, we wound up with 14 of them, some of them involuntary that just happen. some of them things that people choose to do, often under the influence of automatic thoughts uh, and impulses that come into the, into the mind. And so, so with this, we're concluding the third part of the book, which is a catalog of different kinds of problems and how we approach each one of them. And So you know, the next chapter is going to be kind of a wrap-up and a look forward, but with this we're really concluding the, the three sections of the book. The first one on the theory of how problems arise and, and how they can be resolved, the second part was kind of a cookbook on how to do therapy sessions, and this third one has been a catalog of different problems that we're going to encounter that are pretty much the full range of things that that show up in a therapy office and that can be addressed with psychotherapy. So that's it. It's, it's just about a wrap, and uh, next time we're going to put the cherry on top. Okay, so this
0: concludes today's podcast, and um, I want to thank everybody for listening to the end. Uh, We hope it's been helpful to you, and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything?
1: Um, so just thank you to all of our listeners. and we hope you enjoyed this uh, series, but we have we have one more session and we'll try to make that fun and interesting as well. So bye for now. Bye.